Welcome to Alternative Fund Insight, exploring the trends and meeting the personalities driving hedge funds and private markets. My name is Will Wainwright, and this week I am joined by Dave Fishwick, Macro Hedge Fund Manager at M&G Investments, for a special interview recorded in front of a live audience in Frankfurt. This episode is brought to you in association with the Independent Research Forum, enabling professional investors to access a wide range of high-quality independent research through a diverse group of hand-picked providers. IRF publishes a fortnightly newsletter highlighting the latest original and thought-provoking research. For more information, visit independentresearchforum.com. Before we get into the conversation, a reminder that AFI membership is here, an essential information tool for professionals in alternatives. Visit alternativefundinsight.com to discover a new world of news, research and business intelligence tools. Sign up to access our flagship research piece, The Power List, and our proprietary people move and hedge fund launch and closure tools, which are already helping service providers across the industry. Now, sit back and enjoy today's episode with Dave Fishwick, who runs about $4 billion in the long-running episode macro hedge fund strategy. He gives us a fascinating insight into the world of global macro midway through 2023. It was recorded at the inaugural Alternative Investment Congress in Frankfurt, kindly hosted by Cap Inside. I want to start very simply by asking you, how do you build a macro portfolio? So um, I guess the, the, the first point would be um, what are you going to choose to try and exploit? Um, so what instruments are you going to think of as macro? So macro is a pretty broad church. Uh, it goes all the way from systematic to very view-based. Um, a lot of macro hedge funds have been very rates and FX focused. Um, my own version of it actually gets into equity assets as well um, and does it at the aggregate level so you're not trying to exploit individual stock volatility or differential behavior it is very much top down Mm -hmm. so i would kind of define most macro strategies as about the challenge of the real interest rates versus risk so trying to think about what's happening to company profits and credit risk versus inflation, growth, and real interest rate dynamics. So so I think you have to decide where you're gonna play. I myself don't play in the commodity space. We play in equity assets, in fixed income, both government and credit, uh, and in the FX markets as well. And then I think second to that, you've gotta be able to describe how you think you're gonna make money for people. So again, a lot of, I think over the years, I've been doing this for 35 years, um, and when I first started, it was very conventional just to say, we think this and we think that. Um, The issue is, how can you develop some kind of repeatable, sustainable edge? Um, And lots of people manage to do that with a quantitative approach to life, 
my own version of that is a valuation and behavioral driven view <laughs> that life is surprising and we all get surprised and shocked all the time. Last year was shocking, this year is shocking. Um, and you know, if you look at the forecasting track record of most institutions, whether they be central banks or anybody, it's pretty hard to forecast this stuff. So it's a pretty broad church. Um, as I said, I like a disciplined, repeatable, identifiable thing that you're going to try and do and be very clear where you're going to play and where you're not going to play. So you're investing across asset classes. You've got this behavioural approach. And I want to talk about the, the number one topic in macro, which is the high inflation that we've had, which has proved very persistent, especially in the UK, which is very annoying. We've had the rapid rise in rates um, in you know, most major economies now. So a really successful winning position for macro last year was based on the fact that you and your peers foresaw that inflation was going to be persistent when central bankers thought it was going to be transitory. So how did you make money from that? Um, so effectively by shorting uh, intermediate parts of government bond markets, both in the US and in Europe, um, and also being short of the S&P 500 into commodity and energy type of equity at the same time, and also through the FX, um, buying those commodity-oriented currencies as well. I think the, the critical point is it wasn't just about the inflation surprise. Um, it was the starting point of the valuation. Mm -hmm. So when I started shorting the US bond market, uh, yields were 0.6 at the five-year level. Um, and the market at that point in time had priced no Fed funds rate increases until 2024. And here we are now 500 basis points plus north of that, and it's not even 2024. So that, this kind of massive shock doesn't come along every calendar year. Um, and again, that's another feature of macro investing is the returns can be lumpy. It's hard to kind of deliver what you think of as incremental alpha. It's all about what's the opportunity set, how do you see it, uh, how long can you wait for it to go your way. Um, and so an opportunity presented itself at the back end of 2021 where you had some pretty extreme views about interest rates and you had 11% nominal GDP growth and yet the market was saying nobody's going to do anything about this. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was, it was a combination of the underlying economic beliefs and a, and a complacency from central banks, but also complacency in the markets as well. Mm -hmm. And how do you see things at the moment? Because everyone talks about macro volatility, and this year we've also had the regional banks, we've had Credit Suisse, we've had various other issues. So are there areas that you see complacency or opportunity at the moment? So obviously you've seen a, a pretty big sell-off in the bond market. Um, so again, US two-year yields are back up near, not far off 5% again, and the Fed funds rates at 5 What I would still say, though, is that if I look at consensus economic beliefs from economists and market participants, this is something I've been tracking since the late 1980s. Um, it's very interesting that people, although they're 
worried and can observe on current high inflation, if you ask them, where does this end up? Mm-hmm. How does it turn out? They're still kind of saying, um, this is going to be all right. So all that's really happened in the transitory discussion is it's taken a bit longer than we expected it to. Mm-hmm. And so obviously the measured inflation rates have gone higher, but ultimately if you look at forecasts for next year and the year after and the year after, they're all twos. Um, and again, I would say there is some doubt about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so bond markets have sold off a lot, but I would say there is a degree still embedded in markets, particularly after the recent rallies in equities, but also what's happened on the long end of the curve of not complacency, but kind of hope and wishful thinking. So, you know, in a sense, valuations have adjusted. But if you were to suggest that inflation is still going to be a bit of a challenge and misbehave, there's more, uh, there are more fireworks to come, in, in my view. So again, it's difficult to position for that today mm-hmm. because valuations have adjusted a lot. Um, and so there's no, none of that complacency in bond markets that you previously had. Um, but I think that most people, again, if you ask me, um, you know, <laughs> over a glass of wine to say, where's inflation going to be? I'll probably tell you it's going to be a two as well. But again, in terms of thinking about, <coughs> are you being paid for the risk that it's not? The answer is no, not really. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned forecasting. Um, why did the central banks get it so wrong? You know, Frankfurt, Thread Needle Street, the Fed, macro managers were way ahead of the game. <coughs> so, so I started off my career in 1987 straight out of university and I was asked to forecast the European economies focusing on Germany. And so the, my task was to be more right at forecasting the German economy than the consensus of the world, which as a 23-year-old struck me as reasonably challenging. Um, and we had a go at that and got some right and some wrong. Part of the answer is these are just incredibly complex dynamic systems that are evolving the whole time. Um, I don't think COVID and what I would say was a change in labor market and economic agent psychology fitted well into, into central banks models. Yep. But I would also say that, and I've challenged the Bank of England and other central banks over this for 20 odd years, I also think that they took far too much glory from the behavior of inflation in the first place. Mm-hmm. So I don't think making the Bank of England independent was why UK inflation behaved well for a long period of time. They actually had to do virtually nothing. And so the system, a deregulated, globally competitive system, and a psychology that ran through society um, about what we all deserved, I think were the kind of key drivers along with technological change to lower inflation. And I think that COVID in particular fundamentally changed that. Mm-hmm. So when we kind of talk from a UK perspective about broken Britain, uh, it is very hard work to try and get things to function as they should. And I would say that the, the cat is out of the bag. So I think societal attitudes have shifted about what's fair what we all deserve. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, these things are incredibly difficult to forecast. The focus has moved from profit to labour. Yeah, absolutely. So again, for all of my working life, up until this last bit, um, the profit share of GDP has been a big winner. 
So profits have done way better than the growth in GDP in virtually every geography that you can think of. There are a couple of exceptions uh, where society has some different priorities. Um, but that's begun to change. Mm -hmm. And if you kind of think about uh, what's happening with UK utilities, uh, other things, and about intervention into the system, so regulating things, I think that there is a big question mark going forward about whether we're at the early stages of a material regime shift. Mm -hmm. And I think the inflation question is a very good one, which is, um, so when I first, as I said, used to go and see the, the, the Deutsche Bundesbank, uh, which I used to love doing, coming to Frankfurt to go and see them. I remember when they, the ECB began, and I talked to them about inflation, and they said, well, the history of our life in the Bundesbank has been over the last 40, 50 years, uh, inflation's been three on average, and we think that's pretty good. And then if you kind of think about inflation targeting of zeros to two and all of these ideas, the notion that you can control that easily, I think was always misplaced. Mm -hmm. So if inflation doesn't come back down to two and settles at three and a bit more volatile due to all sorts of energy elements and some of these societal changes, there is a very big question mark over whether central banks genuinely have a democratic mandate to try and get that three down to two. Because in my view, they didn't get it down from three to two. The system got it down from three to two, and they were able to say, aren't we good? Mm -hmm. And so I think of, you know, a lot of the central banks took far too much, uh, as I say, too much, soaking in too much credit and, and glory are in and around that. And, um, I think it's going to be hard work. So if I think about the transmission mechanism, already in the UK and the US, people are very uncomfortable with raising mortgage rates aggressively and deliberately putting people out of work. Ultimately, and I remember Jay Powell was asking a Congress session, um, you know, are you effectively saying you want to increase unemployment by two million to try and get inflation back under control? The answer is yes. Well, there are societal costs associated with that. You're talking about human beings. You're not talking about some academic exercise. Mm -hmm. So again, when I think about what that means for markets, that, that discussion, if we get into that economic world, is ahead of us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty sure what the Bundesbank would have said, but I'm not sure that I could say what the Fed and the ECB and the Bank of England will say. Does anyone have a question about the central bank inflation rates issue. Um, any questions, put your hand up and we'll, we'll, we'll take them. Um, Do you think they're forcing a recession in the UK at the moment? I don't think they want to talk about it, is the answer. But the only transmission mechanism, historically, so the Bundesbank would tell you their transmission mechanism was getting the Deutsche Mark up, and that kind of squeezed profit margins and therefore unemployment rises. So in the UK, you could think maybe pushing sterling up would have an impact, but ultimately it's through mortgage rates and the structure of the UK housing market is not what it was. So they've got very blunt tools um, and they'll target people that really don't want to be targeting very much. But if you want to slow down, I mean effectively just talking about shifting the demand curve back to the left, there is, there is only one way that you can do that and that's to cause stress. And so hysterically, uh, embedded inflation issues that are into the labour market 
uh, and start feeding into expectations, they are all ended by recessions. And so again, I would say that when you think about how asset markets are set up, there's, there's an element of complacency or wishful thinking in and around that. So magically, you put interest rates up another 50 basis points, and you think that's going to solve your inflation problem. Well, last time they solved an inflation problem, interest rates were at 15, not 6. I mean, in, in the UK, we have a former hedge fund manager as prime minister. He calls himself a Thatcherite, who dealt with these issues in a certain way in the early 80s. Do you um, think he'll be able to sort this out? Well, again, it's very interesting that governments, the government is wanting to take responsibility for the inflation rate. Mm -hmm. So that's a kind of step back to when I first started working in the 1980s, when the UK government did set interest rates. Um, I, I worry about the transmission mechanism, and they've I mean, their political outlook is pretty bleak to start with, but if you're really going to go after the housing market and <laughs> push mortgage rates up, it's going to be even bleaker. Um, I mean, in some sense, they're in kind of last chance saloon, so they, they may as well do it if they think it's the right thing to do. But I, I would prefer them to, fo to focus on the sources of, of disinflation that we previously saw. So deregulating, increasing competition, creating the right incentive structures. That's where the low inflation came from. Mm -hmm. um, and it produced great economic growth at the same time. But it's a difficult game to play now because society's aspirations have changed. So the whole net zero issue, the whole equality debate, diversity, inclusion, these are things in my own firm used to have profits as its number one target and didn't really say much else. Now profits are about fourth or fifth down the list of its aspirations. Its aspirations are about sustainability, are about uh, diversity, inclusion, and general community help. So my, my weekly emails where they're sort of summing up how the firm's doing scarcely mention performance and profitability. They're all about these other issues. And I think that's, that's meaningful, not for this year's return, but I think you have to have a kind of view about where, where is all of this going. And it suggests to me a much less capital-friendly scenario is a material risk. Again, my own view about anybody's ability to forecast anything is that it's incredibly hard, very difficult. But I think that... Um, life's changed and I think that has meaning yeah well I hope they have a small line saying they want your fund to perform as well as it possibly can do yeah um, okay I wanted to ask you about artificial intelligence massive topic at the moment it's been great for the Nasdaq what are its implications as a macro hedge fund manager so so personally I've uh, looked on enviously um, it isn't an area that we would naturally go. So we wouldn't um, go down to the stock level. However, I think that um, there are some very smart people out there telling us that this is extremely important. And so along with a lot of technical change you've seen elsewhere, uh, I think it is part of some potentially meaningful macro forces to do with the inflation side, 
to do with labour markets, uh, to do with profitability. So the way that I would be looking at it would be to try and understand how markets have priced that and whether they're being overly optimistic about some of the, the dynamics of that. Um, again, and I would be looking on an observational basis about what's currently happening and, and, and try and understand where it's going. So right now I would look at it in a kind of broader thematic sense and say it's pretty heavily bid. Mm -hmm. So it's got a big risk of reversal. So much like the TMT technology bubble and bust, those underlying businesses actually did very well on a five to 10 year view, but their share prices had to fall 70, 80% because they'd just been overblown. You know, there's a risk currently with that. And so again, we would look at the NASDAQ itself, broader indices, uh, and if we think they're expensive and behaviorally expensive, um, we would have a look at that. But, it, but it seems to me, trying to understand these things ex ante is extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. But it, it feels like to me, this is a very compelling story that can have macro influences and, and how you want to incorporate that in your investment strategy is challenging, um, but you don't want to be dismissing it. Um, we're here in Frankfurt. We've talked about the UK. What's your outlook for Europe at the moment? Um, so again, Europe's actually we've been uh, pretty optimistic about, and so had exposures on the long side in the equity assets. Um, so German equities have been a, a long position for us. So this was pretty much about October time last year. Uh, everybody was saying it's, it's inevitable there's going to be an unpleasant recession. Um, and yet if you actually look at what's happened to German profits, they've done pretty well. So actually German equities have done very nicely outperforming the S&P in the recent past. And the valuation of the assets that they got as cheap as they were during the Eurozone crisis by October, which suggested to us that we should get long of them. Um, so again, they're trading at valuations that still look reasonably compelling, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and that's true across parts of Europe. Um, you know, it's not kind of what I would call episodically behaviorally cheap, because they've just done quite well. But in terms of medium-term value, uh, equity assets look, look like they're okay. Mm -hmm. And obviously value has been restored to some extent in the bonds, but we've kind of got this unfinished business with the inflation dynamic. So again, the same social aspiration elements that are a challenge elsewhere are also a challenge in Europe. So I wouldn't be deeply pessimistic, and I think that what's happening with the underlying commodity and energy prices is, is potentially a meaningful boost to demand in a number of places, and Europe in particular. So um, again, I, I wouldn't be uh, having material exposures that are in around this, but, uh, but our attitude towards it has been mildly positive. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanted to ask you about um, Russia, Ukraine. Did the events in the last few days change your thinking at all? Uh, it's an interesting one, because I was, I was on a panel elsewhere six weeks ago, um, a long list of questions uh, were talked about and Ukraine didn't get mentioned. Whereas if you kind of think about last time, last year, um, you know, momentarily at least, it was all anybody wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously 
governments like the UK blame the whole situation on, on, on the Ukrainian situation as well. Um, my, my approach to these things would be again trying to under, understand these things ex ante. Mm -hmm. It's not, a, and putting, putting material exposures in portfolios is not a great way to think about the issue. Because again, my observation would be last year what happened is that people were worried about inflation and the Fed were talking about tightening and the same was happening in Europe. And then all of a sudden the Ukrainian invasion happened and it all got priced out, which is an old playbook, which is anytime anything bad happens, we all know the Fed cuts rates. And yet when you actually kind of think about the holistic view of drivers of interest rates, it didn't make any sense that that was true. So the Ukrainian situation can have an influence, but it's only one influence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So again, I would say that the recent days, it's on the radar screen as potential for disrupting or relieving markets. Um, but I would look at the aggregate valuation of things because there are so many other things that can drive this. And again, I wouldn't base any investment strategy personally around me claiming that I have insight relative to the marketplace on what's going to happen in the Ukrainian situation. Sure. My own experience of that is it's a very dangerous game. Uh, we used to do those sorts of things 30 years ago, and as I say, we got some right and some wrong. But quite frequently, even when we got it right, markets didn't do what we expected them to do. Mm -hmm. So again, I think that's why I think you need a kind of holistic uh, and consistent view of where valuations are, because you're, you're permanently going to be shocked by things that, that come from left field. Yeah, yeah. Do we have any more questions? Yeah, go ahead. Will you invest in cryptocurrencies, or are you allowed to do it? Technically, we, we, we could. Um, at the very heart of everything that we've always done. So we started running this strategy um, for what was the prudential of the UK's internal insurance funds. Um, and so they wouldn't have done any of those things and they didn't have any commodities. So the evolution of the approach and strategy was about what those funds already owned. So they own most equities and most bonds and most things you think about. So um, the approach that we have is I want to be able to value income streams. I want to be able to see how the market wants to be compensated for risk. So my problem with commodities and my problem with crypto, and to some extent with currencies, other currencies themselves, is that I find it very hard to provide a sense of value. So whereas if I watch a 10-year bond sell off 300 basis points to 4 or 5%, I kind of have a sense of whether that's the right value or not. The problem with some commodities and crypto is I'd find it hard to think about that. To some extent it's frustrating because the very behavioural things of, of bubbles and busts is exactly what happens because of that absence of value anchor. But I find it very difficult to buy or sell something at a certain level and if it goes against me I'm not sure what I should do really because I, I didn't know where it should be in the first place. So I'm not saying I get everything else right but um, at least when a, where a bond or a where an equity index trades, I can try and identify whether it's cheap or expensive. In the world of crypto, 
it's, it's difficult for me. So again, I look on enviously when things move around an awful lot, but we have plenty of ways of generating returns and occasionally getting caught out ourselves. Is it a, a must for the central banks to try to uh, run around 3% as opposed to sub 2% given the debt uh, levels that the person comes at uh, accumulated in the last decade? Um, yes, so long as the bond market doesn't price the 3 to 4% permanently. So the cost of debt. So, in a sense, what the central banks want to do is try and make people believe inflation is under control and the bond market has yields appropriate for 2% inflation and yet the outcomes are not. Um, so it's a, it's a tricky game. So the whole thing about inflation credibility was about getting the cost of debt down. So again, you can argue it both ways, really. You can inflate your way out the debt, but you can't if the bond market sees what you're doing and so that because you, you've got new issuance coming. So um, it's a tricky game to play. Um, but ultimately, I remember immediately after 2008, the bond markets didn't do well because everybody said the only way out of this mess is to inflate your way out of it. So assets like gold and, and other assets did very well in that environment temporarily. Um, but then bond yields did eventually come down and that's where all the massive QE came from. So again, it just feels to me like this is unfinished business. As I said at the beginning, the Bundesbank said 3% inflation outcomes pretty good. But at the moment, with your 10-year bond still with a 2 in front of them, a 3% inflation outcome is, is a tricky one. Um, well, then the fact that yield curve control fixes that bond market problem. Yeah, it will, but I think philosophically they would look back at the phase of 2015-16 with negative rates and lots of interference in the market with an element of regret because of what's been unleashed as a consequence. So it, it comes back to, um, you know, why did they get inflation wrong? A lot of the kind of orthodoxy is being challenged, so they've been very surprised. And so again, there's a lot of discussion around whether we should be giving more, whether we need a whole new crop of central bankers who return back to monetary ideas um, rather than a, a kind of Keynesian view of life, which is different. So all of it suggests to me there are lots of different ways to argue it and to think about it. Um, but that debate, it feels to me, will, will continue because it seems to me inflation volatility and society's aspirations mean you're unlikely to get this super benign, everything's all right again outcome. So you've got a busy few months ahead. Yeah, or years. I think it's, um, yeah, you, I, I would expect, you know, what we tend to do is to try and wait for markets to go definitively this way or definitively that way. At the moment, they're kind of sitting in the middle, saying we're not really sure or we want to price it. That, that, so, but you can see how you could you, you'd visit the other end of probability distributions with highly correlated view about it's negative or it's positive. Um, at the moment, it's, it's a bit kind of sit tight and see which way the market goes. Um, but that whole policy debate, um, without a benign resolution, will cause turbulence. Mm -hmm. We do have one more question, so go ahead. Do you see a scenario where 
is flips to um, where the Austrian school maybe becomes more relevant, and then all of a sudden gold and some money or Bitcoin would become more relevant in the um, investment world? Uh, it's definitely part of the probability distribution. Yeah, I would, I would say um, it'll take more chaos to get the staff of these central banks to be replaced with a different set of models. Um, but it's being talked about. And, and it happens like occasionally all over the globe, right? Yeah, it does, yeah. I mean, I think that ultimately experience causes a change. So expectations adapt to circumstances. At the moment, they're still stuck in a, I don't know what happened, our models didn't quite work, but our models are still right. And so again, the monetarist stuff about what's happening to M2 in a number of places uh, is being dismissed. Um, it's very odd that, because actually the IMF and the Bank of England, for example, were very negative, you know, telling people that there was a certainty about recession, and then they backed off that. Um, you know, the managers would tell you it's merely being delayed, there are long lags. Uh, just like there were long lags that you didn't spot on the, with inflation on the way up. But I do think, yeah, um, economics is almost always in crisis because forecasting the world is just incredibly hard. So there aren't any models that explain it. And so I'm personally a big fan of the behavioural stuff uh, going against all of my economics training about making a whole set of assumptions that made the real world fit into a model. Um, the, the reality is the real world is extraordinarily difficult to model. Um, so I think that there is a good chance that orthodoxy changes because of getting stuck with slightly higher inflation. Um, but I also know in terms of the people's, I mean it is pretty staggering if you look at the forecast error for the central banks in the last three or four years. I mean, I've tracked it a lot over time. I mean, it's, it's hilarious. So the Bank of England in 2007 started using these fan charts to make it clear that they couldn't point forecast. But most of the outcomes in the following four years were outside their fans. <laughs> and that's true if you look at consensus economic surveys. They'll show how people have this kind of subconscious approach so the first thing that happens when the world doesn't look like what you assume it should is you assume it's temporary. And then when you get, um, and then when it says it stays that way, you still think it's temporary. And then give it one more go, you still say it's temporary, it's just a long leg. And then finally you change the view, normally just at the wrong moment, and actually you were right all along. Um, and that is the nature of expectations. People dragged kicking and screaming away from what they believe to be true until it's so obvious that, <laughs> that, um, that it's not true anymore. So, yeah, I think, and this is an important point about the world for a very long time looked like it conformed to a set of beliefs. Um, I actually don't think that's what was happening at all. Um, and then the COVID and post-COVID period have fundamentally challenged that and you'd kind of go as far as to say the Bank of England's pretty much clueless. I mean, Janet Yellen, when she left the Fed, at her last press conference said, we have no idea what's driving US inflation. 
So it fills you with confidence. Well, I think the, the point is, as an investor, you just have to take with a pinch of salt everything that's said to you by these guys. So the notion when they say we've done a 50 basis point increase that they know what they're doing, it's, it's highly unlikely. Okay, on that note, we will conclude. Uh, Dave, that was brilliant. Um, please join me in thanking Dave. Thank you to Dave. If you haven't already, please follow AFI on LinkedIn and sign up to our free newsletter, an essential read for anyone in hedge funds and private markets. That's it for now. Until next time on Alternative Fund Insight.